show me the way to go home. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago and it's gone right to my head. Wherever I may roam, on land or sea or foam, you can always hear me sing this song. Show me the way to go home. Hello and welcome to the virtual pub for some drinks, trivia and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim and I'm joined by my... my... <laughs> I didn't know how to describe me that. I swallowed all those words. <laughs> Clearly not okay, um, which might lead us to our theme of the day. So first of all, I'm joined by my regular drinking buddy, O'Leary. What are we serving today and why might I have forgotten how to speak? <laughs> Because you old. I'm so old. <laughs> so old. Um, yeah, won't be a surprise to know that we are talking about aging today. <laughs> we are talking about aging in in the booze sense mostly. Yes. But um, inspired by the fact that um, as this goes out, I will be turning forty. <gasps> Disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> Is that it? Are you done with me now? You're like, no, you've gone too far. Yeah. We can't be friends until I'm 40. <laughs> and then you can just tell me how great it is. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> I will shepherd you through that moment. Um, <laughs> no, I'm excited, actually. I'm not I'm not nervous about ageing at all. Um, and so this is going to be a celebration of ageing. All the wonderful things about ageing and booze instead. I'm, um, I'm drinking an old-fashioned. How about you? I see what you did there. Um, yeah. I've got a wine, just a red wine that's been aged not very long. <laughs> <laughs> Has it been aged for the few months it was um, in the barrel? Yeah, I didn't give it long. <laughs> but you're, you're aging like a fine wine, so that's why I'm uh, drinking this. Thanks. When you say yeah. I'm aging like a, a fine wine, do you mean I'm, I'm getting oakier? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at you thinking, oh, he's been here long enough. I should really get get that done. Yeah, I'm getting, <laughs> get getting okay and my tannins are settling. Um, <laughs> yeah, I decided to go for an old fashioned just for the for the sake of the name. Although I think we are mostly going to talk about wine. Um, mm. But before we get into that, I'll, I'll just tell you a little bit about the old fashioned then. So this okay. is one of the uh, well, simplest and earliest versions of cocktails. In fact, it kind of comes from before cocktail was a thing, um, before all the bartending techniques and recipes of the later part of the 19th century. Because the, the first documented definition that I know of, of the word cocktail, was in response to a letter where someone had written into a magazine enticingly called The Balance and Colombian Repository, uh, which is like a page a New York, turner. Yeah, New York <laughs> Journal in May of 1806. And they'd written in and asked um, them to define the word cocktail. Um, and so they said, well, it's a potent concoction of spirits, bitters, water and sugar. And at the time, it was also referred to as a bittered sling. So they would have known a bittered sling. They're like, what's this new thing called a cocktail? And what they've described is essentially the recipe for the old-fashioned, um, which is, I say, whiskey, bitter, water, and sugar. And then by the 1860s, it was kind of more common for things to be added. So you had like orange curacao and absinthe and other liqueurs that they would throw in to make more complex cocktails. Uh, but there were still drinkers who wanted that simpler version rather than the new kind of crazy concoctions that were being come together. And so they would ask their bartenders for something old fashioned. So the pre 1850s drinks. So it was generically referred to as like an old fashioned drink before it was known as the old fashioned, um, if you like. That's interesting. <laughs> I thought. Um, right, wine aging. <laughs> <laughs> so the thing to know about um, wine aging as opposed to other kind of um, drinks that might age is nothing in wine is ever static. It's kind of always on the move. So you've got acids and alcohols that are reacting to form new compounds all the time. Other compounds will dissolve and then they'll combine again in a different fashion. 
and it happens at different rates, but it sort of happens constantly. So anytime you open a bottle, then you're catching it at some stage of development, and it's always going to have a different nuance. I quite like thinking about it in that sense that you're not mm. necessarily waiting for a wine to reach the right point of aging. It's just you're choosing a moment in its development that will be like no other moment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so when they're young, when wines are young, you're mostly tasting what what tasters, and we're we're getting dangerously close to tasting notes. But I'm going to try and avoid it and talk <laughs> about what aging is. Um, but you you taste their primary flavors, so it will be things like grassiness and citrusy if it's you know white or it would be plummy if it's merlot or whatever um and then you get those secondary notes as well so those are things that might come from the oak like vanilla or, or butteriness or whatever it is and then as they age you get these tertiary notes that come from all the development so that could mean that some of the the fresher stuff the younger notes get subdued and they might turn into something that's more like dried fruit as it as it ages and other things that were hidden before like herbs and earthiness and mushroom and hay and all those sorts of words you think what really you really tasting that they all come through as it as it ages more so what's happening you've got phenolic compounds like tannins uh, that are in wine and in a young wine these compounds repel each other because they're they're small enough to stay hidden in the wine and then as it ages those uh, little elements start to lose their charge and instead of repelling each other they combine and they form longer chains and become larger and heavier and continuing with the uh, the chemistry it that reduces the surface area of the tannins which means that they start to taste smoother and rounder and gentler uh, so when people say oh this is a this is a nice smooth wine that's why it's because of the change in structure of the tannins um, and then once those combined compounds become too large, they're going to fall out of suspension. And then that's where you see them as sediment. Um, dry aged white wines kind of go oily, like they become almost a little viscous, while the reds tend to go smoother with uh, the way the tannins develop. Um, one of the most obvious kind of uh, ways to see aging is obviously the colour. Um, that happens through slow oxidation changes um, and everything in general tends to move towards brown uh, which <laughs> doesn't sound appealing when you put it like that you know they don't they don't come out looking like ale but it means that the whites go a little bit darker and they tend towards amber um, whereas the reds sort of become less opaque and go more towards a tawny but it does mean that everything's kind of in, in color tones going a little bit more brown Mm. Um, that mostly happens because of oxidation and that depends on the amount of air that's left in the neck of the bottle after it's been sealed um, and then also how permeable that seal is so how much oxygen can get through to it traditionally we've been using natural cork well I say traditionally it's not that old actually but I'll get to that um, natural cork uh, and it's um, uh, it's it's obviously kind of permeable but permeable but it doesn't have a specific rate of permeability it's natural so you will get variation from case to case of wine as to how much that's let through um it's not only cork though we've got modern versions of it you can get synthetic closures like um uh, the sort of plasticky imitation corks um, and screw caps as well and actually they do still allow an amount of oxygen through. You can still age wines, even if they're a screw top. I think some people think that you could only age wine if it's cork, but that's not true. Although we don't have really good data on exactly like how that works and at what rates. Um, and the other thing is a wine doesn't have to be vintage to age it. That's another thing I think people think sometimes. As long as the wine is good. So yes, you cannot age cheap supermarket wine. <laughs> it's not, that's not gonna go well. But if you do get like that sort of medium price one that is still really good and has a good balance, crucially, of things like acid and sweetness and tannins, if as long as it's got a balance, it will develop. Um, probably between three and five years, though, if it's not a vintage one, that's what you want to go for. That'd mm -hmm. be the sweet spot. Um, sparkling wines you can age as well. 
Um, a couple of years in the bottle tends to give them a softer foam when you pour. Um, aged champagne as well has been known as something that the British consume more than some of the other cultures. And so in France, it is referred to as le goût anglaise, so the English taste uh, <laughs> if they age their champagne. Uh, in 2009, actually, there was a 184-year-old bottle of Paris Jouet that was opened and toasted, and apparently it was still very drinkable. Mm. had notes of truffles and caramel. Yes, please. That's what they said, I would like to which try. Sounds absolutely banging. Mm. Uh, <laughs> fortified wines uh, are high in sugar and they're high in alcohol, so that acts as a preservative for the ageing, which means they age very well. In particular, the, the wine that seems to age the best, most consistently, is vintage ports. Um, between 20 and 50 years seems to be the sweet spot for most of them. And of course, we know that to be true, don't we? Yes, we do. We enjoyed many of those at Christmas. Mm-hmm. Mm-mm-mm. Do you have a sort of... Have you, have you tried kind of a few aged things and do you have a favourite thing that ages well? Um... Do you know what? I'd never really thought about it until on my wedding day, my cousin who lives in Barbados gave me a bottle of rum that he was really, really proud of. Um, And he said, like, this is a very, very special rum. And he presented it to me as if it was like a human child. He was so proud. (laughs) 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 He handed it over and he said, you know, open this on a special occasion. And it's... um, yeah, it's a rum that's been aged for 15 years and it is delicious. Um, and it wasn't until then that I'd really kind of thought about it or cared about it all that much or appreciated it. But now, yeah, I get it. But also, as you know, I <laughs> I found some more rum recently in um, Chris's grandma's house. Very exciting. Um, this was spectacular. When you sent me this photo, uh, I, well, I couldn't believe it. Tell the story. Tell the story. Tell the story. I'm going to get the picture up so I, 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 can, I can give everyone the full idea of what I found. Uh, so we go into the booze cabinet, which had so many dusty bottles in there, it hadn't been touched for about 50 years. Um, and I got very excited. Uh, I found a bottle of the Lemon Heart Golden Jamaica Rum. And at the bottom, the tagline says, new blend for the 1970s. <laughs> so it's um, 70% proof. United Rum Merchants Limited. The address is 97 Tooley Street, London, which got me very excited because that's where, well, nearby where you live and where I used to work. <laughs> um, and yeah, I sent you a picture of that and you got very excited because it's obviously the the first rum that was given to the Navy soldiers in rations mm. and very very historic and i can confirm that it still tasted very good <laughs> yeah i love that you went straight in for it <laughs> there was no hesitation like well i'm gonna i'm gonna taste this yeah yeah it's exciting it's, it's just over the road where all the the warehouses that we've spoken before um that i was spoken for in this podcast when um, i talked about hayes galleria and all the imports coming through that it's exactly there it's a tesco now um, on <laughs> Street. The other interesting thing is that the the brand Lemon Heart is um, it was actually a nickname of the founder who was Lehman Heart uh, and mm-hmm. was a Cornish uh, a Cornish guy. But yeah, the the very first rum to be contracted as rations for the the navy is quite a big thing. Mm-hmm. Can't believe that was so local. I know, and we had a swig, Chris and I, whilst all the family would looked on in disdain. <laughs> we were like, no, <laughs> it's still it's still good. We'll have this. <laughs> yeah. It's historical value. It's not yeah. just being a booze hound. <laughs> well, it was at the time. Sure, yeah. <laughs> oh, excellent. Um, if you are going to do a bit of your own uh, storage, if you've got like a nice wine, you're like, maybe I will leave it for three years and see what happens. Uh, top tips, you, it needs to be in the dark. It needs to be in a cool place. So uh, between 12 and 13 degrees C is typical wine storage. In like Shoreditch, uh, somewhere really cool. In somewhere really cool, really hip, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> give it, Draw a little beard on it. <laughs> that, was li- that was literally the only thing that came into my head. I was like, what would be an accessory that would look cool? And like, beard, that's it. That's top knot, top knot yeah. and a top knot. bike. 
<laughs> yeah, and stick it on a little scooter. Um, anyway, yeah, so um, higher, higher temperatures will accelerate the rate of chemical reactions in a wine, and that can be uh, that can damage it if it goes on for too long because then it cooks the wine and it makes it kind of just taste like like stewed fruit. Um, not poster stewed fruit, but not in that context, maybe. And the darkness yeah. is important because ultraviolet rays get in and that spoils the wine as well. So um, that's that's why people stick it in cellars. It's not just to hide it away. <laughs> Although in your case, it is. <laughs> um, knowing whether something is aged well as well uh, is still, as far as I know, impossible without actually opening it and tasting it. I sort of half suspected that there might have been some sort of clever science by now that could scan through the bottle using x-rays or something and be like, that's a good one, that's not a good one. But yeah. no, I couldn't find anything. They're like, if you want to know whether it's it's gone well or not, you actually have to taste it. I mean, it's a tough job, but someone's got to do it. <laughs> um, on that as well, the, um, the consensus seems to be that people vastly overestimate <laughs> how long they should age a wine for or whether a wine will be good to age and that more wine is consumed too old than too young mm -hmm. so aging changes wine definitely as i said it's always in flux but that doesn't mean it either improves it or makes it worse there's no sort of real consistent way of knowing uh, a lot of the time the fruitiness will disappear quite rapidly um after six months particularly in the bottle um, and also due to the cost of storage if you've got cheap wines it doesn't make sense to age them even for a little bit you might as well just get them out there because they're not really going to benefit and it's going to cost you a lot of money to store it um, about we reckon we me and the experts <laughs> <laughs> we reckon only about five or ten percent of wine improves after one year and only 1% improves after five years. And it's estimated that 90% of wine is meant to be consumed within a year of production and 99% of wine within five years. That's or if it's something you, I stick to, immediately. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Give it a month, it'll do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But you shouldn't feel bad about that. According to the stats, like if you're, if you're going to take a chance, you're better off drinking something immediately than thinking that you should wait for it. Yeah. Good to know. A uh, bit of history? Do you want a little bit of history? Give me history, please. Okay, so... If you remember, and I always hesitate to start a sentence like that, uh, from ancient Greece uh, to Rome, mm -hmm. they made their wine strong. That period of time, the ancient classical worlds of Europe, they made strong wine and then they watered it down. Um, to, to, to drink it but because it was high in alcohol that meant it aged very well and so there are actually lots of classical references to the preference and also health benefits of old wine or straw wine as they might call it where it would be stored in amphorae in these in those pots that you recognize those big pots um, in ancient rome as well they would have a smoke chamber known as a fumarium that would enhance the flavor of wine artificially so it was they made it smoky to make it seem like it had been aged so the amphorae were placed in a chamber that was built on top of a, a heated hearth um, and that would sharpen the acidity as well as give it that extra bit of smokiness um, and then it would usually come out a bit paler as well a bit paler like red wine does when it ages but then after I was going to say the fall of the Roman Empire. I mean, it didn't really fall. It just sort of went elsewhere. But um, after that, Europe favoured the more light-bodied, low-alcohol wines without having to water them down afterwards. And that meant that those would go off after a few months. They are those, those new wines that you have to drink young. And so ageing just disappeared for quite a few centuries. And then it wasn't really until the 16th century that those Mediterranean countries popularized things like Malmsey or our old friend Sack. Le Sack. Remember Sack? I love the Sack. Yeah. I've I've read the bathroom walls. Uh <laughs> so that those are both sweeter and more alcoholic, which means they're going to be very suitable for um, aging because they'll be preserved. And also similarly actually in Germany they had Riesling. 
um, which is also high in sugar and high in acidity, uh, which reacts together as they age. And then those fortified wines grew in popularity and particularly as exports to Britain in the 17th century, which I think we sort of covered in our port episode um, at that age as well because of the alcohol. But also 17th century is when we get the invention of the corked bottle. So like I said earlier, you know, cork actually isn't as old, I think, some people think it is. Or cork just feels like this ancient thing that's always been around as long as wine has, but absolutely not. Um, so for the the producers of um, wine that was being aged, they would obviously do it in barrels. And the cost and space of storing barrels or even then bottles of wine was actually quite prohibitive. So it meant that there was a specific group of people who had land and had warehouses and had those merchant connections that were the only ones that could do it. And it really facilitated this rise of the merchant classes, particularly in, in wine regions. It's what made them so powerful is that they owned the space to store an aged wine that was then going to be sold um, more expensively. Uh, there's still some experiments with artificial aging going on, not so much the smoking, but they've got things like micro oxygenation, magnetism, radiation, the most successful one that I've seen from reports seems to be passing high voltage electricity through it. So if you I, shock your wine yeah. with electricity, apparently it ages it. I saw some lads doing this online and they claimed they could age it in 30 minutes. Mm. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it's all of these sounds like, you know, wild speculation, but apparently that's the one that, that really works for it. Should we try um, it? <laughs> yeah, could you, could you like rip some live wires out of your wall right now? I know you've got building work going on downstairs. I'm yeah. sure there's some exposed wiring. If you just go in. I'm pretty sure there's loads downstairs. I'll just. Dip your glass into it. it I'm, you've had science. a lot of, you've had a lot of success with, um, you know, doing things with drinks in the past. So I'm sure it'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you know what the oldest still existing bottle of wine unopened containing wine is that we have that we know of well based on the fact that the you and the experts say that like five to ten years is the max age that you should really age it you think Mm -hmm. it shouldn't be too long is it a bottle of wine that got forgotten about or is it a bottle of wine that they're like let's age this for Yikes. No, this is this is unintentionally aged. This okay. is dis- this is discovered. Oh, I'm going to say three hundred years old. Okay, so this is a bottle of wine known as the Roma vine, or the Speyer wine bottle, and it is at least one thousand six hundred and fifty years old. Oh, yeah, it goes back to the fourth century. That's going to be sludgy and brown. (laughs) Well, you are not wrong, let me tell you. (laughs) So it's it's a one and a half litre bottle, um, glass vessel, discovered during the excavation of a Roman nobleman's tomb in modern day Germany. Uh, It it hasn't been opened, so we don't know what it tastes like. We don't know what it smells like. Uh, We don't know what would happen if we exposed it to air. It stayed sealed with a stopper of wax and olive oil um it's almost certain that there's no alcohol in it anymore because that would have evaporated long ago um but it you can see it it's on display at the historical museum of the palatinate in speyer in germany apparently only one person um handles the bottle because everyone else is too afraid of dropping it (laughs) (laughs) but yeah they've got pictures you can see online and your description of it is absolutely what it looks like. It looks like disgusting brown sludge. Oh, no thanks. I, I reckon I could dare you to have a taste. <laughs> Probs. I could goad you into that after a couple you, of Jaeger If you chill it, I could pretend it's like a slush puppy or something. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you should put that on the list. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> smash, let's smash and grab the uh, German museum. Yeah, just suck it off the floor. <laughs> Smash it, suck it. God. Wow. Um, <laughs> is that the name of your new bar? or? <laughs> That's what I'm going to christen the new building work downstairs. 
Oh, have you um, have you experienced a bottle of wine gone bad? I mean, obviously the ones you make, but like, have you had one that's that's meant to be good? Like being in a restaurant or something, and you buy something a little bit pricier, I have. and they go, "Does it taste okay?" And you're like, "No, it doesn't." No, no. yeah, I've had it before. Thankfully, it was when I was on um, like some corporate lunch or dinner, and we'd been taken out by some people, and they brought the wine, and I don't know whoever the chap was that was paying. I can't remember. He got to taste it, and he was like, "No." And I was intrigued. I was like, I've never seen anybody say no. Um, mm-hmm. And so I said to him, is it, is it a preference thing? Do you not like it? He's like, no, it's bad. And then he gave me a sip and it was just really like sharp and yeah, just not nice. It's hard to describe exactly what the taste of a gone off wine is, but you know it. It's just like mm. when you taste it, you're like, oh, that's not right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a few things that um, they kind of need to look out for in the in the aging process that can upset the wine. Um, and, you know, a couple of them are, are, are inevitable. They're just about kind of knowing when it's happening. So one is bottle shock, um, which is when the wine is sort of considered to be going through its, uh, like, traumatic phase <laughs> of, of being bottled. Um, the emo phase. Yeah. So it's been, it's been exposed to some oxygen, while it's being bottled, which causes a bit of a domino effect of chemical reactions. And then it takes a bit of time for the wine to then settle down again and have the oxygen fully dissolve, integrate with the wine. And that's what's called bottle shock. So during that time, it tastes quite different to how it did just prior to bottling or how it will taste after the wine has settled. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they try to, you know, when they bottle it, they're obviously trying to treat the wine gently to avoid that from happening and some will use inert gases as well to reduce the amount of oxygen um, exposure when they put it into the bottle Uh, but it will vary across each wine so it's something that they need to be wary of when they bottle it's not to not to bottle it and sell it immediately it's not so how how do they gauge when i guess you know if if you're bottling a lot of wine you're gonna have a taster aren't you you're gonna have one that you open as a sample Mm-hmm. But I think if it's so expensive that you wouldn't want to waste a sample, then you're just going to leave it longer in the bottle. You wouldn't risk doing it early. True, yeah. Mm. Um, there's also something called the dumb phase, uh, which is when it just all tastes a bit muted. So it's, um, they call it the difficult age as well. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is like it's growing up having an emo teenage phase. Um and it's when, yeah, we well, it, so it's it's when it's like amid changing between one thing and another and it's at its least amount of tastiness. We don't really know why that's happening mm. other than it just being sort of like a, a, a chemical reaction grey area down point. But yeah, a mysterious dumb phase. So if you're <laughs> tasting a wine, you're like, why doesn't that taste of anything? Then it's just, you've got to wait longer. And then, of course, the infamous cork taint. Oh. <laughs> Are you okay? <laughs> you need to see Which... a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you have cork taint, please consult a physician. <laughs> um, yeah, but that, that's that thing. That's the off flavour. So when it arrives on your table and you're like, is this okay? And you're like, oh, there's something really pokey about that. That's cork taint. Someone's put um, their taint in my wine. Someone has tainted your wine, yes. Um, So that can happen because of a range of factors, really. Um, But that come from the, obviously, the um, cork that's been put in the the bottle. Uh, It can be mould that grows on the cork itself. Um, That can be part of it. It it can just be an off off cork. It can be, uh, yeah, some sort of contamination that happened as part of that process. Um, some quick facts on cork. 68% of all cork is produced for wine bottle stoppers. And is is the rest jiggle. for like people on saga holidays buying wedges? Sandals, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, cork, cork wedges, um, notice boards in offices. Dart boards. And um, people, people who like to do stuff with crafts. Cool. Um, oh, oh, and Australian hats obviously oh yeah (laughs) um the largest producer of cork is portugal they make over half of it 52.5 percent 
come from Portugal, from the cork oak trees. Um, so what they do is they peel away the bark and they cut it into sheets and then they process it. So the oak trees aren't actually cut down. The cork trees aren't cut down. Only about half of its bark is removed at any one time. They're only harvested for the first time when they're 25 years old and then it takes place every nine years. Um, and then after the third harvest, so what's that? That's like 52 years old. That's when it's the cork is of high enough quality for wine corks. So it is. It is actually really sustainable. It's been. It's been. They've looked at it and they said this is the most sustainable way to um, to seal up your wine more so than any of the other methods. Mm. So why are those weird plasticky fake corks a thing? Partly it's to do with quality control. So as I say, you're not going to get cork taints. You're going to have a consistent level of oxidation um, because they've got, they know how permeable that is. Um, but, but yeah, it's, I mean, we shouldn't be really. I mean, a lot of them, you know, a lot of those, there is a, a manufacturer of those that says they are recyclable if you take them to a specific recycling point, but you know how that works. Yeah. Um, it is better to for people to use cork. It's just that it's, it has inconsistent quality, so that's why some people didn't use them. Okay. And I think the metal screw caps are cheaper. So that might be why. Um, I'm going to uh, talk about kind of what else happens when wine goes wrong. <laughs> and for me, it's a good thing, which is that it produces vinegar. Mm. But is there anything else kind of like through my uh through my journeys of wine aging that uh do you know what you on that sparked any thoughts you and i covered pretty much the same stuff in our research (laughs) (laughs) i thought i'd have a little bit but uh honestly there's not much the only thing (laughs) i had to add is that um you went into detail about the chemistry of aging wine and for a Mm. long time um that wasn't understood for a long long time people didn't get it and that's why um old wines are often sold at like crazy prices i don't know if you saw some of them in your research just some of the prices on these aged wines i didn't um, really look at the specific price of vintage wines because i know so... they can be sort of crazy and also it's a wild card as i say we don't know whether they taste good or not so i know that people can get insurance yeah when they buy really expensive wines at auction yeah so that's why I was interested to read into it because after doing the research and like yourself finding out that most experts say that only 1% of wines are worth aging and even then it's like 5 to 10 years so mm-hmm. what is the point in spending all this crazy money on these <laughs> aged wines um, but I looked into it and I found a list on um, a sommelierbusiness.com website um, the top 10 most expensive wines in the world um, aged wines so one of them is from 1945, uh, Domaine de la Romanie, Conti Grand Cru. Uh, would you like to hazard a guess on the price of that? So this is the most expensive one on the list. Oh, the most expensive. I'm going to go for... Um, it's in dollars. All right. I'm going to go for $200,000. Mm, nope. <laughs> Uh, $558,000. So yeah, it was the most expensive bottle of wine ever sold. Uh, It was sold in 2018 to an Asian collector. Uh, There were only 600 bottles of it made. um, And at this point, there's very few left. It's heralded as the unicorn vintage. Um, The vineyards are renowned for their highest quality standard of burgundy wines. I'd like to know if that guy has ever been tempted to crack it open (laughs) yeah i feel like at that level they don't because it's a commodity it's like um you know it's like people trading artworks that they don't actually display or enjoy Mm, or like uh, unopened 1970s star wars toys or things like that (laughs) like when you collectors aren't necessarily about the enjoyment of the products are they (laughs) no it's just to say i've got it Mm -hmm. um Second most expensive is seems quite young given what we've tr- sort of spoken about, but 1992 was um, this one. It's called Screaming Eagle Cabernet Sauvignon, and that was five hundred thousand uh, pounds. 
uh, sold at a charity wine auction in California. It's uh, opaque purple in colour with a beautiful blackberry flavour. The wine is bottled unfined and unfiltered and is aged in 60% new oak. Screaming Eagle doesn't sound like a quality brand to my ears. No. It sounds like something you'd get in Lidl. It sounds like a metal band. <laughs> <laughs> a metal band's own brand wine that Slash is released in a German beer. supermarket. Uh, next we have Jeroboam of Chateau Mouton Rothschild, nineteen forty-five. Um, that sold for three hundred and ten thousand and seven hundred pounds. Uh, it's one of the most prestigious wines made in the vineyards of Nathaniel Rothschild. This vintage is considered among the best produced in the last hundred years. The label of this bottle contains a V, which represents the victory of the Allied forces in the Second World War. Uh, again, this one's got an elegant blackberry and oak flavour. Seeing a trend. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chevel Blanc, 1947, sold for £304,375. The vintage has a dense structure and is a result of exceptional weather conditions for the vines in '47, thus making it a wine that could never be replicated. Uh, Chateau Lafitte, 1869. So that's quite old for this list. Mm. £230,000. Uh, three bottles of this. Ah, it's three as well. Three for 230 grand. Bargain. Bargs. Two, was, it, was it three for two? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Get a bog <laughs> off. Um, three bottles of this were sold in 1869. Um, sorry, three bottles were sold in 2010 um, at an auction in Hong Kong. Initially, the bottles were estimated to sell for 8,000 each, but much to the surprise of the auctioneer, the bid was sought after uh, for the sought after wine reached 230 grand. Uh, an anonymous buyer came in and bought them. Another very old one on the list, Chateau Margot, 1787, sold for 225,000 um, pounds. It's known for having the initials of Thomas Jefferson, the third president of the United States. Um, unfortunately, this wine could never be drunk or sold, as it was knocked over by a waiter, making the <sighs> bottle shatter to pieces. At the time, it was valued to sum at around five hundred thousand, but the insurers later paid only two hundred twenty-five thousand, making it Oof. the most expensive bottle of wine never sold. Wow! I wonder what happened to that waiter. <laughs> 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 Are they even alive? Um, another one on the list, Ampoule from Penfolds, a limited edition of Australia's Penfolds 2004 Carbonacea Vignon, um, 168,000 pounds. The ampoules of this come in a glass container that can only be opened by breaking off the end. To make sure it's opened correctly, a winemaker will accompany the buyer to open the ampoule. Uh, they're the most expensive wines to be retailed directly from a winery. Seems a bit bougie, doesn't it? Mm. Um, Chateau Lafitte Rothschild, another Rothschild wine in the list. 1787, sold for £156,450. Um, it's another one thought to be owned by Thomas Jefferson, as it had the same initials. Um, mm. This one wasn't smashed. <laughs> it was um, found around 200 years later in a cellar in Paris. And it was auctioned at Christie's of London in 1985. Um, getting cheap now, 136 grand. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> Henry Jayer, Bosnia Romani Cros Parantou, 1999. So produced by the famous French winemaker Henry Jayer. It was sold again at a Christie's auction in Hong Kong. Hard to say if the popularity of the winemaker or it was actually the wine's quality that kind of elevated the status and why it sold for so much. But uh, it's said to be very tasty. Overall rich and dense structure laced with hints of ripe red fruits, minerals and spices. No dumb phases or cork taint here. Good. <laughs> <laughs> no horror stories from them. Yes. But I think I've said this before that, like maybe in the in the barrels episode or something, that I don't think you would. 
I think if you were foolish enough to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on a bottle of wine that, that you then tried and it was horrible, you'd just lie about it. Because you wouldn't yeah. want to look like an idiot. You'd be like, oh, it was, it was the best thing I've ever tasted. You missed yeah. out. <laughs> you missed out. I didn't share it with anyone. It was so good. Yeah. That's my theory. <laughs> I don't think we're ever going to hear a story that, that goes like that. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe... Oh, no, it was a waiter that smashed it. Maybe they, maybe they kind of... The waiter poured that little bit for someone to try and they were like, oh, my God, it tastes like shit. Yeah, could you just... Smash it. I'll yeah. give you a bit of hush money. Mm-hmm. Noobs. Conspiracy, con- conspiracy. <laughs> yeah, that. You all conspiracy theories abound. Yeah, I really am channeling that um that aging inability to, to speak today, aren't I? Um, so I want to take aging of alcohol to its inevitable conclusion, which mm. is vinegar. Big fan, you. I love a bit of vinegar. Um, yeah. balsamic, straight up just vinegar, mint sauce, um, mm-hmm. pickle mm-hmm. juice, anything. Put it in me. All of it. All of it. <laughs> <laughs> okay um so <laughs> let's uh let's do the etymology vinegar mm-hmm. arrives into middle english from old french vin aigre, which is sour wine which comes mm. from latin vinum wine and aca sour there we go simple sour wine makes sense um <laughs> that was a really short etymological journey <laughs> enjoyed it Yep. Um, so vinegar typically contains between about 5 and 8% acetic acid by volume. And usually the acetic acid is produced by double fermentation, which converts sugars to ethanol using yeast. We're familiar with that. We've done that. We know how that goes. <laughs> but then the ethanol turns into acetic acid by acetic acid bacteria, which was discovered by our old friend Louis Pasteur, um, who we talked about in the yeast episode as well. So it's sometimes called mother of vinegar. You heard of this? No. So mother of vinegar is um, it sounds like, slightly like a drag name to me, but um, <laughs> it's a it's a biofilm um, which is formed of cellulose and acetic acid bacteria that develops on fermenting alcoholic liquids, which turns alcohol into acetic acid uh, with help from oxygen from the air. So. Mother of vinegar can also form in just any vinegar that you will buy if there is some non-fermented sugar or alcohol contained in it. Um, That's a little bit more common if your vinegar hasn't been pasteurized. Um, So it might not look particularly appetizing (laughs) having this sort of slimy film over it, but it is completely harmless. Um, And you don't have to get rid of the vinegar if you see a slimy film in there. In fact, you can just filter it out, you know, using a coffee filter or whatever. And then you can add water to the mother of vinegar and produce another bottle of vinegar. Or you can just ignore it. Chen it. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So the, the first documented evidence of vinegar making and use was by who? Mesopotamia, I don't know. Yes! <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I really feel like you started to get the hang of this now. After 60 episodes, you're, um, <laughs> you're, you're there. Yeah, the ancient yes. Babylonians around 3000 BC, um, they primarily made vinegar from dates and figs and beer, uh, used it for culinary uh, purposes and medicine as well. Uh, that's just the the oldest, oldest documented evidence, but presumably it's as old as alcohol production. Um, and vinegars exist in every culture, just like alcohol does as well, because it's kind of inevitable, isn't it? At some point, some alcohol mm-hmm. is going to turn into vinegar. Um, the first like large industrial scale process for vinegar production was invented by Carl Sebastian Schusenbach in what was then the Kingdom of Baden. So that's now like South Germany, North Switzerland um, in 1823. Um, and what they did is they circulated alcohol over beechwood shavings to reduce those fermentation times from several months down to one or two weeks. Um, and that made meant that vinegar was also now starting to be produced from pure alcohol spirits or spirit vinegar or distilled white vinegar rather than having to, you know, make like a good wine or whatever first. Um, and then shortly after, Japan began industrialising vinegar production. Uh, this was, um, when was this? This was mid-19th century, the Tokugawa shogunate. And um, they made it from from sake, predictably. Uh, so a sake <laughs> brewing family. 
uh, discovered that the sake lease could be used to make rice vinegar and sushi was becoming really popular at that time in Japan which uses a lot of vinegar um, and so he founded a company known as Mizcan which is headquartered in Kyoto and is now is still the largest vinegar producer in the world mm. there you go. go to Japan for your vinegars um, you can get fruit vinegars which are yes. very common and very easy and um, for example and very tasty for example apple cider vinegar um, I make it sometimes I make apple cider vinegar because you just make it with scraps um, mm -hmm. leftover scraps and whatever's local so um, if I'm if I'm eating apples I get a lot of apples um, with my deliveries I just take the um, seeds out and put the cores drop them into a jar with some sugar, with some water, and then let it turn into vinegar. You like leave it for three weeks, drain all the stuff out, leave it for another three weeks. I remember as a kid, my mum had this amazing little rotating condiment thing. Um, mm -hmm. They were different flavour vinegars, and they were glass, like frosted glass jars in the shape of like whatever flavour vinegar they were. And there was an apple one, but I always remember there was a blackberry one. And it was mm. so tasty. And I used to put it on my chips and it was, oh, yeah. I think more so people good. should give it a go. It's really, it's really not that hard. You just, you know, you need a jar and some sugar and water and vinegar doesn't go off. Mm. I mean, if it, if it grows mold, it's no good. You need to toss it. But the secret to that is just make sure that any fruit you put in um, is covered in water. If it's covered in water, it probably won't develop any mold. It's when there's not enough in it. Mm -hmm. and it surfaces so that the bacteria can get it and obviously make sure the jar you're using is really clean when you start off but it's good fun you can just throw any old scraps in there and it'll turn into vinegar shall i put it on the list sure i mean i already do it but you should mm. i think you should give it a go you can't you can't mess with vinegar come on i think i'm i'm gonna stick with the science and aging wine in 30 minutes it sounds far safer okay yeah yeah messing about with the high voltage electricity definitely sounds safer yeah um, as I say, people use whatever's local, so you'll find like common ones in South Korea, they use persimmon, in China, they use wolfberry, in New Zealand, they predictably use kiwis, and then you get raisins and dates across uh, the Middle East. So, lots of local varieties of fruit vinegars. Balsamic, you probably want to know something about. Mm, I've got a fun story about balsamic, which I can share after you oh, go on. about it. <laughs> tell, me, tell me your story. I just know that you like laughing at my misfortune, so yeah, um... I do. Last last weekend, I was very hungover. I'd been to a wedding in Poland and drank a lot of vodka. Um, mm -hmm. So I was very, very, very hungover. And uh, my husband and I went for a meal to try and poke ourselves up. And they brought us some bread and oil and vinegar. But annoyingly, they didn't <laughs> they didn't bring like a little dish with the oil and vinegar. You have to kind of serve it yourself. So mm. I just used my bread plate, put a load of oil in there, a big dollop of the balsamic, dipped my bread in it soaked it you know i love vinegar soaked it in it popped it in my mouth and immediately felt sick because it was not balsamic vinegar it was soy sauce <laughs> <laughs> oh no <laughs> and i have never been so angry i was like why would you bring bread oil and soy sauce it's like you know yeah. i'm hungover. <laughs> yeah that's that's really upsetting i feel your pain <laughs> but it does also bring me joy um <laughs> So balsamic vinegar is an aged vinegar produced in Modena and Reggio Emilia provinces of Italy. Uh, traditionally, it's made from concentrated juice or, or the must of the white Trebbiano grapes. Um, I mean, I'm sure you'll kind of know what it looks like. It's this thick, sweet, rich, brown, delicious thing. Um, and it's made using successive casks through the aging. So oak, mulberry, chestnut, cherry, juniper, and ashwood. Um, so it was a pretty costly product that originally was only for the upper classes in in Italy, and it has a you know a DOC um, designation of origin status to protect that as well. It's aged for twelve to twenty five years. So that's kind of like the original DOC one. There is a cheaper non-DOC form, which will be called Aceto Balsamico di Modena, which is mostly what people would buy over here um, now. Uh, and that kind of came about in the late 20th century, really, as a lot of the Italian foods really kind of took off in exports. 
Um, so it's still made with concentrated grape juice, but then it's mixed with a strong vinegar. And then it might be coloured and slightly sweetened with caramel and sugar as well. So, you know, there's a big difference between yeah. <laughs> the, the really true original one and then the, um, the sort of substitute. Mm. Um, it does contain no balsam. But it was traditionally aged in balsam as one of the steps. So it used to be aged in balsam and now it's not. But it retains the name of balsamic vinegar, which is kind of weird considering there's lots of other ones that it's still aged in. Mm-hmm. But there you go. Um, cane vinegar. So that's made from sugar cane juice. Uh, most popular in the Philippines, um, where it is sometimes called sukang basi. Um, it, it's not sweeter than other vinegars, you know, it's got no residual sugar, it's been used up. Um, but it's made in a couple of different ways. So one way is to place sugarcane juice in large jars, um, and it becomes sour by the direct action of bacteria on the sugar. So that's just as you, the same as you would make those fruit vinegars. And then the other way is through fermentation to produce a wine, first of all, known as Basi. So that's a Philippine sugarcane alcohol wine, Basi. Um, and then the low quality bassi undergoes that acetic acid fermentation that turns it into vinegar. Um, so it's pretty cheap, um, which means that it can be used to combine with other vinegars as well, because um, it's sold at a much lower cost. So bassi is this local beverage um, in northern Luzon. And it's being consumed a long time, like way before the Spanish conquest and everything. It's a really traditional one. Um, and they pr- they crush the sugar cane, they extract the juice. The juice is boiled in vats and then stored in these earthen jars known as tapayan. And then once the juice is cooled, they add flavorings made from glutinous rice and um, a, a jar of a plum called duhat, and then some bark and some of the fruits or whatever is added to it as they as they want to. Then they're sealed with banana leaves and they're allowed to ferment for several years. Um, and then the resulting drink is pale red in colour. Hmm. So that's that's Bassi from the Philippines, which is often made into vinegar. Malt vinegar mm-hmm. is probably our most traditional one because that's made from ale uh, and most popularly found on British chips. Um, well. Yes, except. Yes. Do, do, you want, do you want to cover the except in this case? I think, weirdly, even though I did not research vinegar for this, I weirdly know a lot about this because Chris okay. is really into the vinegar that he has on his fish and chips mm-hmm. uh, and so if you're in a cafe or if you're at home or in a supermarket and you buy your malt vinegar more famously we have that kind of like bulbous shaped pear shaped one in the brown bottle that's your malt vinegar put that on your chips and he, he's always said it just doesn't taste the same as the chips you get uh, the vinegar you get in the chippy there's something about vinegar that you get in the chip shop and mm-hmm. there is a reason why and it's because technically or legally that isn't it's not even allowed to be called vinegar mm-hmm. um cuz it's not it's not made with alcohol it's and they refer to it in a really unsexy way as non-brewed condiment vinegar it, it, not even vinegar just non-brewed condiment oh uh, non-brewed condiment because i remember those three words cuz chris drunkenly was <laughs> in a chippy once and they were giving him malt vinegar and he said no i want non-brewed content <laughs> <laughs> and they were looking at him as if he was crazy and he was like it's a thing um yeah and yeah like legally um yeah they're not supposed to call it vinegar they're not allowed to put it in like vinegar bottles or anything it's like really strict there is a big difference between like malt vinegar and non-brewed condiment and that's why if you if you look yeah. on those traditional fish and chip shop vinegar bottles that they use it doesn't say the word vinegar on it it just yeah. says non-brewed condiment or fish and chip taste or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Weird that I know that. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely know. It's you're, you're spot on. Yeah, non-brewed condiment is just water, acetic acid, caramel colour and flavourings. It's not, yeah, yeah, it's not vinegar at all. And it's, it's not been allowed to be called that for a long time. But that's what um, you get in your chippy chips. That is, that is most of what you get in chippy chips. To be called spirit vinegar, um, it has to come from agricultural sources and must be made by double fermentation. So that also includes things like your, your wine vinegars, your sherry vinegars, and even champagne vinegar um, is available, oh. but I've never seen and would love to have. I'll put that on a list to find that. Mm-hmm. You can make beverages as well with 
vinegar. I mean, I know we kind of talked about vinegar because it's the continuation of aging wine, but you, there are there are beverages that use vinegar. So Posca in ancient Rome, ancient Greeks had oxymel, uh, which is made from vinegar and honey. Um, and there's a there's a Persian drink, Sekanjabin, which is very similar to oxymel as well. Um, and then more colloquially around these parts, we all know them as shrubs. I have spoken about shrubs. It was a long time ago, I think, because I made one myself. I, I made the vinegar and then I made a shrub, um, <laughs> which is made using uh, sugar water or, or honey water and then small amounts of fruit vinegar. So you kind of make this syrup by having the, the fruit um, or mint or whatever it is in vinegar for several days and then you sip off the solid parts, add sugar and then add um, sparkling water. It, it's delicious. It's really refreshing to have a bit of vinegar with some sparkling water and then add some fruits in as well. Um, it used to be something that people drank more often and then just sort of stopped doing. Um, have you heard of vinegar eels? A bit of jelly deals, but not vinegar eels. <laughs> <laughs> so, vinegar eels, otherwise known as Turbatrix aceti, are actually nematodes. Do you know what nematodes are? Nope. <laughs> They're like really tiny little worms, free living worms. Um, so, yeah, round worms and things like that. They're not actually worms, but they sort of look like little worms. Um, they're, they're fascinating creatures, actually. We don't know how many species are, but there could be a million um, different species. So they feed on the, the the microbial culture known as Mother of Vinegar. So when I talked about that film earlier, that mm -hmm. you know you can have it's harmless. Yeah, you can get little nematode colonies uh, living within the Mother of Vinegar. Um, so if it's been unfiltered or unpasteurized, they were discovered in 1656 as a as an independent species, actually, by Pierre Borel. Um, I say nematodes are fascinating. They can tolerate almost any variation of acidity and alkaline, uh, probably more so than any other species. They can survive all the way from pH 1.6 up to 11. Um, they are they are harmless. Like they're not going to do you any harm. These nematodes are not parasitic you can get some nematodes that are are pretty gross these are not one of them that's why i thought um, this was going i thought you were going to tell me that like because i eat so much vinegar i could essentially get like a nematode in me like people get tapeworm no. i mean you have you <laughs> have got nematodes within you but that it's not because of the vinegar it's not the vinegar nematodes and they're mostly not going <laughs> to harm you um but obviously people don't really like to see them there so they get they get filtered and pasteurized prior to bottling and that destroys, you know, the bacteria and the yeast culture, so they wouldn't be able to feed on them anyway. Um, if you get a high concentration of them, um, they actually synchronise their movements and they form this little collective wave. Oh, I like them again now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm slightly enamoured of nematodes just because they are amazing creatures. They can adapt to any environment. You'll find them everywhere. Um, all right, so we didn't really talk much about spirits in this episode. Um, partly because a lot of the stuff to do with aging and spirits is about the barrels and we did a whole episode on barrels mm -hmm. because spirits don't age in the bottle like um, like wine's ever changing the bottle but spirits don't do that but what I would I, what I thought I would answer is why then whiskey is so known for aging whereas the other spirits aren't as much even though you, you can do and that's really because of the climate so in hotter climates, the aging process is sped up. Um, so it's just not necessary to keep tequila or rum in barrels for more than a few years. So while you will have, you know, slightly aged, it's not going to be very aged. Tequila reaches its peak of aging around two to three years and rum is about eight years. Mm -hmm. um, and that's going to, you know, vary depending on where it's produced. So you will get, obviously, um, you know, rums across the Caribbean, but you can get them all the way up in New England. So it might need two to three uh, more years. But in contrast, most whiskey uh, and even brandy distillers are in the Northern Hemisphere in places where um, they have that annual shift in temperature and the extreme cold and then the heat uh, along with mild periods mean that it takes a longer time in the barrels just to correctly mellow. Um, so you, you notice it more with the Northern whiskies. Um, the more it's aged, kind of the, the more mellow it will get. Um, and so this is why it's not so uncommon 
to see scotch that's been aged for 25 years while bourbons may only spend seven years in the barrel so it's less do you see what i mean it's less about the alcohol type it's more about the climate in which it's aging and that's why we think of whiskey as being good aged but it's because it's in a cold climate as mm-hmm. opposed to some of the other ones that are in hotter climates so i don't know like if you could flip that i don't know if you could make a tequila in the arctic and then age it for 25 years and that would work but <laughs> i suspect that's what i'm learning i think that's the case i think it's all about the climate you're doing it in i'm not putting that on the list can't be asked <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's fair enough. we've given you a few assignments today i'll, I'll let i'll let you off that one um anything else on uh, on aging um but i don't know about you but you know when i was doing my research kind of Googling a variation of things like aging alcohol, aging wine, aging this, aging that. And obviously the inevitable doom and gloom kind of articles about how alcohol affects aging came up. I very consciously avoided that. I thought, <laughs> well, he's turning 40 and I'm going to make him feel crap. Great, thanks. <laughs> Bring it on. <laughs> but actually it's not as bad as you think. I come bearing good news. Okay. Um so this was actually published just last month um, and it's the largest project of his kind has come to a like a definitive conclusion on it all. Because we always hear things about how, you know, the odd glass of wine here can help with this and it can help with hearts and binge drinking's bad. Yeah. But now in... in Ta- tabloid trash. Yeah, it's it's just... always, you know, I've worked in I've worked in the media. It's whenever you're short on material, you just bang one of those out. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but like I said, the largest study of its kind, it's been a rolling project at the University of Washington in Seattle. Uh, and every few years they produce a paper, which sounds like a jolly old read. It's the global burden of diseases. Um, <laughs> so they, it's, it's the most comprehensive data on the causes of illnesses and death in the world. Um, now, four years ago, this same study said that even the occasional drink was harmful to health and suggested governments across the world should advise people to abstain from alcohol entirely. They were like, nope, it's bad. However, uh, after a major new analysis of global data, the experts behind the study have reached fresh conclusions, and that is that young people face higher health risks from alcohol consumption than older adults. They add adults aged 40 and over without any underlying health conditions may benefit from limited alcohol consumption, such as a small glass of red wine a day. So you're allowed daily alcohol, according to these guys. Um, And they do conclude that a small glass of red wine a day can um, include a reduced risk in cardiovascular disease, stroke and diabetes. So they're the first to report um, alcohol risk by geographical region, age, sex, year. Um, They suggest that global global alcohol consumption recommendations should be based on age and location. And the strictest guidelines are for men aged between 15 and 39 who are at the greatest risk of harmful alcohol consumption. Haha, mic drop. (laughs) I made it. You're all right. (laughs) (laughs) I quote... um, Our message is simple. Young people should not drink, but older people can benefit from drinking in small amounts. While it may not be realistic to think that young adults will abstain from drinking, we do think it's important to communicate the latest evidence. So congrats, mate. You can just crack on. (laughs) Thanks. Uh, I mean, yeah, I was I was just about to retire from all of this stuff when I hit 40. But uh, no. okay. well, if you say carry on, I'd better, I suppose. Carry on. (laughs) Um, one other thing I did do, because obviously it's you turning 40 and Mm. you'll have a quiz. So I've just got a little pop quiz. It's a small one. Very small. (sighs) Obviously, 40 years ago, 1982. Mm -hmm. Um, do you know the average price of a pint of beer that year? Ooh, average price of a pint of beer. I'm going to say, um, 20 pence. 61 pence. Oh. Mm. <laughs> Overly optimistic there. Very optimistic. A uh, bottle of whiskey, average cost? £5. £6.39. And bottle of sherry? Um, 
well, I'm presuming in the 80s it's going to be the sort of bad cooking sherry. So I'm going to no, say... No, they did actually specify it's Harvey's Bristol cream sherry. Oh, okay. I would have thought it would have been slightly less than the bottle of whiskey. So I'm going to say £4.50. £2.98? <sighs> there you go. Mm. Uh, and the last one, fun fact, there was actually an alcohol that was released the year you were born. Do you know what it is? Oh, I'm going to say... It's not on brand, I'm going to say that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, oh, I was going to say Bailey's. No. I don't know when Bailey's was launched. Okay. Would you um, like me to tell you, or do you want another guess? Is it, is it like... Is it one of the Alka Pops that only got it's... big in the 90s? It's not an alcopop, but it's... Is it Jägermeister? It, it's, no, it's it's a party drink. It's not as... It, it's kind of in between, like, an alcopop and an Jägermeister. It was, like, a cool drink that people would enjoy in cocktails and... I don't know. You have to tell me, I think. The answer is Malibu. Oh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> So I think when we're together in a couple of weeks, we should have a cheeky Malibu and Coke. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But yeah, I mean, okay. Ch- challenge accepted. I'm not especially looking forward to it, but challenge accepted. <laughs> there's got to be, surely there's got to be something decent you can do with Malibu that isn't just putting it with Coke. I mean, I haven't um, had a Malibu for a very long time, but there's got to be something. Chin it? I don't know. Chin it, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, is is that it from you? That's it. That's it. <laughs> Just in case you wanted to throw any more shade my way. <laughs> <laughs> and so, our glasses have run as dry as an old, <laughs> which means it's time for some more lubrication. <laughs> Cheers, everybody. I cannot believe. I'm gonna bleep it. I'm gonna bleep it. <laughs> I just wanted to shock. I just wanted to shock you <laughs> and show I'm still young and um, daring. Still, I can use swear words. <laughs> I am shook. <laughs> <laughs>